Hi, this is Deborah, your podcast host for A Positive Influence. Today, I am joined by Mark Darley, owner of the award-winning All Angels English Sparkling Wine. Mark, delighted to have you join us. Thanks, Deborah. I'm delighted to be here as well. A good place to start is to ask, have you always wanted to own your own vineyard? To which the answer is an emphatic no, I haven't always wanted to own my own vineyard. <laughs> and there were certainly times during the growing year when I wonder whether I still want to own a, 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 a vineyard at all. I've had an interest in wine since I was 25, and I've been buying wine since I was 25. But the thought of actually owning a vineyard uh, never occurred to me in, until we, we bought Church Farm. How did you discover Church Farm and come up with the idea? Well, it's a kind of funny story. So until two years ago, I was working in the city. I retired a couple of years ago after 35 years in the city. And our main house was in Wimbledon um, because I was basically traveling all around the world. But our son was going to Marlborough College. And so I was sent off by my wife to find a lock up and leave that we could go to at the weekends. And Tom, our son, could come up and see us there at the weekends as well. Uh, but Christine sent me off unattended. Uh, and in the course of looking for a close lock up and leave, I found and fell in love with a farm, uh, which is a glorious sort of uh, mid 17th century farm. Not at all what we had in mind. Uh, but nonetheless, um, I persuaded Christine that it was a good thing to do. We had a full and fairly full and frank exchange of views as to whether it was because she thought it was part of my plan to get her to move out of London, which it wasn't. And indeed, you no. Know, until about 18 months ago, our main house was still in, in Wimbledon although we've been down here since I retired. So having bought Church Farm, uh, we had a lot of land, and the question was, what do we actually do with the land? And now, Christine, my wife, comes from a far more country background than I do. I watch Country Files, so I had a far better idea, and I suggested alpaca. Point, choice was thrown out of the window on the basis that main home is in Wimbledon. I'm somewhere around the world, New York, Hong Kong, wherever, but I'm not going to be at the farm. Alpaca will break its leg, and who's going to be left to deal with? So we, we, we scrapped that idea, and then we thought, what else can we do? And one of our friends has a commercially successful vineyard in Herefordshire, and we thought, well, heck, if he can make gerbit up there, there's a good chance we might be able to make good gerbit down here you know, in the south. So, as I say, we thought climatic conditions are going to be tougher up there than they are down here. But we didn't know the first thing really about vineyards, so we got in some vineyard consultants to analyse the soil and the, the ground. And they came back and they said, it's absolutely perfect. Beautiful north-south facing aspect. The highest point, it's 120 metres above sea level. And the important point about that is that in those days, the view was that you couldn't grow Chardonnay above 150 metres. That's all changed in the 11 years, 12 years since we planted because of global warming. But also the soil was absolutely spot on. It's sort of a lovely sandy loam over green sand with flint and a little bit of clay deposit. So incredibly free draining, but also the clay helps to retain some of the nutrients. And, and that was the idea. So in 2011, we planted our first vineyard. That's fantastic. I must have come as a surprise that it met all the requirements. I mean, a lot of people dream of owning a vineyard, and myself for one, inspired by films such as A Good Year, where it's set in France with your chateau and sweeping images of vineyards. But in reality, what's the hardest aspect of, of running a vineyard, especially in the UK? The hardest part, I think, running a vineyard, probably anywhere, in actual fact, is, is dealing with nature, by which I mean the what 
is colloquially called global warming, but which I prefer to call climate chaos. And we'll probably chat about that a little bit later. But it's the uncertainty as to what the weather's going to be doing and the impact it's going to be having on the vines. That said, it is a lot better for us in the UK than it appears to be in France nowadays. Certainly, what we've seen is an awful lot of champagne houses buying land over in England because the future is definitely going to be English sparkling wine. With global warming, climate chaos, we're in a much better position. So, for example, Tathinger have bought a significant amount in Kent, Pomery in Hampshire, and so on and so forth. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is that there's a significant cost associated with it because we are effectively a startup industry. We're probably the largest and quickest growing sector of the agricultural industry. But nonetheless, obviously what we're doing is we're getting KIP for the first time. We're developing KIP for the first time. We're trying to be innovative. So, for example, doing a lot with drones in terms of examining the vineyard from above so you can identify where there might be any nutrition deficiency or indeed to identify where the cold spots are so you can fight frost. So it's, that's really the hardest part. Put it this way, I mean, I used to work in all hours when I was a partner in a US law firm and I'm working pretty much the same kind of hours now although uh, significantly less money uh, involved. <laughs> oh, but uh, surely more rewarding. Mentally, yes. I mean, as I say, I swapped my commute from one hour stuck next to somebody's armpit, given how small <laughs> I am, to three minutes with three Labrador dogs in tow. So uh, that, that's certainly a definite plus point. Goodness me. What advice would you give those starting out on a new venture? I think the advice I would really give, and it obviously depends upon your industry, so specific advice if you're looking to plant a vineyard, but I think generally what I would say is you may have a good idea, but what you need to plan very carefully is how you're going to monetize that idea, by which I mean how are you going to make money out of it, Where because you need to make that money in order to keep your, keep your business going. So where your outlet is going to be, how are you going to sell your product? And importantly, what is your exit strategy? You know, at the end of the time, when you decide uh, I've had enough, it's time for me to to enjoy my life, how are you actually going to exit? Are you just going to stop or or whatever? So, for example, in, in France, the French government are now actually paying vineyard owners to stop work and plough up their vineyards on the basis that they have no other exit strategy for their vineyards. And so these people are just going to go get pretty poor unless the French government actually helps pay them out. Goodness. Different industry. I mean, I don't know why, but the French government seems to have an awful lot of money to give to their cultural producers, unlike the UK, but, you know, cost of living and all that. Well, that's really sound advice for anybody contemplating a new venture. We covered briefly earlier, I wanted to ask you more about nature's trials, especially frost and drought, both sort of financially and mentally. Tell me a bit more about that. Well, frost is my, my bet noir, and I mean, I can talk about frost for, uh, for ages. And indeed, I gave an interview yesterday for Vineyard magazine about frost, because we, we don't suffer from it any more than anybody else. But to, to give you an idea, when we, one year, uh, just after we planted, when we didn't have any frost protection, and we're a lot smaller than we are now, and we had some bad air frost, we produced enough grapes after we'd selected the very best ones for 3,200 bottles. The following year, same size area, again, as I say, much smaller than we are now, 
We had frost protection in place. We didn't have the air frost, and it was enough for 23,000 bottles. So Goodness. significant difference. Yes. But fighting frost is uh, massively time-consuming and extremely expensive. So the traditional way is uh, using what are called bougies, which are these candles you may have seen in, in photographs. Now, for one minus four frost incident, you need 400 of those per hectare. Each one of those costs around about £10 and will last for eight hours. Oh. So for a minus four frost incident, for one hectare, you're looking at £4,000, oh, um, which is a significant financial cost. So, I mean, for, for us, we could be looking at around about £30,000 for one minus four frost incident if we just use bougies. We have other alternatives as well. And we are this year trying with a completely new product, which is an infrared product, which cheaper, but it is quite difficult to set up. And in terms of the effort, give you an idea. I mean, last year wasn't so bad. So I think I was only up fighting frost about seven times. And by being up fighting frost, I mean, you're starting at 11 o'clock in the evening when you get the telephone call from one of your weather stations saying it's going to get frosty. You're then working through the night, replacing stuff the following day, and you're finishing at five o'clock the following evening. So you work from 11 till 5. That was only, you know, a few times last year. The year before, physical challenge. Well, the year before, I did 27 nights, 17 nights in a row. You smell like a stoker. Even (laughs) the dog wouldn't sleep in the same room as me. Um, But it it just has to be done. It's very expensive, but the alternative is losing your crop. Um, So psychologically, it's a tough gig. But I say, having been a partner in the US law firm, I'm used to working all night for multiple nights in a row. So it's not too bad. Drought isn't an issue for us. So because of where we are in our soil composition, our vines retain water pretty well. And each vine drinks around about a litre of water a day. So if you were to look at our vineyards from across the valley last summer when we had these incredible conditions and it's very dry, yes, you'd have seen a, a sort of a complete wash of arid brown with the exception of these large strips of bright green, which were our vineyards, completely unaffected by drought whatsoever. People often ask, do you have to irrigate? The answer is no. That's incredible. Uh, the the physical toll, though, I, I would struggle myself to, to manage. And also emotionally and financially, you can't budget because you don't know what nature's going to throw at you. I mean, how do you how do you cope with that? Well, mentally, it's, uh, well, so I'd say mentally, it's not too much of an issue because I'm used to working all night. I am particularly unhealthy, so I don't really exercise much during those two months of of April and May. I mean, April and May, I go teetotal because I never know when I'm going to need to get up and get out. Right. Um, It is very unhealthy. I eat a lot of junk food simply to give me a bit of energy. And then I regret it at the end of May. Um, (laughs) Financially, what you do is try and prep each year. So last year, we didn't have the enormous drops that we had the years before, but we still got all the same amount of stock. So we now have that in stock for this year. Right, so you've got that in hand for for this year. We budgeted in that way. But believe me, I mean, the economics of running a vineyard and producing English sparkling wine are incredibly tough. Mm. People ask, what are your objectives? And my objective is, to be blunt, to get the point, hopefully sometime in the next two years where the revenues cover the running costs. I have no prospect whatsoever of ever recovering the capital element, which is significant. But that hopefully is 
a legacy that I'll pass on to my son, or more likely a millstone that I'll pass on to my son <laughs> when he decides he's had enough time in the city as well. Oh, Mark, thank you for your honesty there. You've chosen not to have a vinification plant. What's the reasoning behind this? The reason behind this is really twofold. First and foremost, we are in an area of outstanding natural beauty. Notwithstanding sort of rural development plans and the like, there is very little prospect that we would ever get planning permission for a winery in our area of outstanding natural beauty. Our council it takes a considerable amount of time. We put in a pre-application for one particular building and it was seven months before they even responded to that. So the prospect of getting any planning permission at all is pretty much zero. The other is to be candid. It's a significant investment. I mean, you're, you know, you're talking, I would guess, somewhere in the region of one and a half to two million sterling. Oh, my goodness. Um, you, you just wouldn't get that back. Um, to put that in. And mm. then you, you obviously you've got to employ people as well. So what we do is we have the best of both worlds because we are very close to a, another very well-known winery. What we do is we basically take our grapes and down and we use their facilities and everything is blended, pressed, fermented to our specification, but it's using their kit. Obviously, we pay them for it, but that's significantly yeah. cheaper than us yeah. building a facility and employing a, a winemaker and, and all the rest of the staff ourselves. Right. right, that's understandable, Mark. Is there a reason why you produced a sparkling wine instead of a still white or rosé wine? Yeah, I mean, there were, there were, I guess there were probably three reasons uh, for that. The first being purely commercial is that you can actually get a, a higher margin with sparkling wine. That said, our sparkling wines take, on average, around about six years to come out to produce because what we will do is we leave them on secondary fermentation in body for a long time. So by way of example, we are currently selling our 2014 classic cuvee, um, long-aged on lees, and that's been uh, secondary fermentation in bottle for seven years, and we'll be releasing one later this year that will be fermentation in bottle for eight years. That's a long, long period of time in which to have your capital tied up. With a still wine, you can churn it out the following year. So right. we could, uh, in 2022, we could have uh, produced a still wine from grapes that we grew in 2021. That said, we are in the game of producing not volume, but the very, very best quality wines we can produce. Now, there are some outstanding English white wines, still English white wines, but not that many. Okay. Um, there are one or two really good still red wines. But again, not that many. We are definitely moving in the right direction uh, to produce absolutely world-beating still white and still red. But we're not there yet. I don't think the climatic conditions are are there yet. And to put it this way, I, it hasn't stopped me. The fact that we've got a great English wine industry doesn't stop me buying Ampumeur, uh white burgundy or, <laughs> or Ampumeur Bordeaux. Oh, um, Mark. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that part. I have, I have stopped buying, uh, I've, I've still got a lot, but I have stopped buying champagne of any description. And the reason for that <laughs> yes. is genuinely, and I'm not just saying this, I genuinely prefer English sparkling wine. There's a real difference between English sparkling wine and champagne. There's so much more going on in English sparkling wine. There's so much more flavour to it than everything except the very, very top end champagnes. And if you think about it, you know, 
Moet Chandon produced 30 million bottles of champagne a year. That is roughly three times as much as all wine of any description that is produced in the UK. So we are just chasing down the quality, the quality, the quality. Absolutely. And that's what it's really all about from our perspective. And as I say, if you go for the very, very top end uh, champagnes, they are absolutely outstanding. No two ways about it. But you'll be paying 10 to 15 times as much as the most expensive English sparkling wine. Not the same fact, a lot of people think English sparkling wine is expensive. Right, anyway, that's, yes. I know that's not what you asked about, but I can no, that's, bang on about that's, it. No, not at all. That's that's fine. I completely understand. Let's talk in detail about your classic Cuvée 2015. Uh, you've been receiving some incredible reviews regarding the quality and the taste. These include setting a very high standard for Berkshire wines and the delicious celebration of vibrant fruit, including orchard apple, quince, wild lemon and grapefruit alongside tropical notes of honeydew melon and lychee, with plenty of aged presence of baking croissant, warm pastry and shortbread. The very thought of it makes me want to have a glass right now. Tell me, talking from an uninitiated perspective, how are these various flavours achieved? Going back to what I was saying before, just before I asked the question, this gives you an idea as to the difference between English sparkling wine and the vast majority of champagne, which frankly is frothy and bubbles. I'm pleased you mentioned bubbles because I find your English sparkling wine is much less fizzy and more palatable. Yeah. And I mean, again, this is all down to the way the wine is made. So, I mean, and I'll answer your question now. (laughs) In terms of the the fruit flavours, that is a combination of the, the, the fact that we have superb growing conditions in the UK for for grapes, for English sparkling wine. If you had to pick one country in the world for to grow grapes for sparkling wine, it would probably be the UK. And I don't just mean the south of England, I mean right the way through to Scotland. From a geological perspective, we are probably the best country. What's been holding us back has been the, the climatic conditions. And we've now got the climatic conditions to produce absolutely outstanding grapes. And this is this is really what it's all about, is growing these grapes. We have this great ability to produce grapes that have the perfect balance of sugars and acids. And it's the sugars and acids which form the basis of the flavours. So it's important to pick in the right conditions. And we only pick the very best. So again, we've been very selective when we produce English sparkling wine. We will quite regularly do what's called a green harvest. So we'll go through and we'll cut off a bunch of the grapes before they're ready and discard them so that we get the best flavours and the best sugars and acids into the remaining grapes. Reduces the yield, but it gives that that real flavour. The next element to produce this is the blending process. And what you do is you basically, when you pick your grapes to start with, they go down and get pressed individually according to what their variety is. So you'll have a tank full of Chardonnay, a tank full of Pinot Noir, a tank full of uh, Pinot Mernier, and so on and so forth. And they'll all ferment away from when you pick, which is October, through to when you blend, which in our case, we're going to be starting blending next Monday. And what happens is you sit down in the winery, and it looks like a chemi lab. So you've got <laughs> test tubes all over the place of different compositions of, of these, these grape varieties. And then you sit down, you have one big test tube, and you pour a little bit of uh, Chardonnay in with a little bit of Pinot Noir, you mix it down a bit, 
take a sip. Does that work? Maybe. <laughs> Let's put a bit of Pinot Moni in. And you go on like that. Mark, so, are you trying to tell me it's trial and error? <laughs> is this something you've uh, learned yeah, as you've gone along? Is, or? A lot of it is when you're doing the blending. It's really a case of, and this is where the experience <laughs> comes in. Right. In terms of identifying what is the best flavor. What flavor do you want? But it's incredibly tricky because you decide that. So say we decide, it won't be on Monday, but say we decide in about three weeks' time, that's the blend we want. We want 50% Chardonnay, 28% Pinot Noir, the rest Pinot Moni or whatever. From there, it gets taken out of those tanks and uh, barrels, and somebody is in a barrel, and it then gets put into bottles. And this is the difference between producing Prosecco and producing champagne or English sparkling wine. It gets put straight into bottle with a little bit of yeast and a little bit of sugar. And there's a secondary fermentation goes in that bottle. Now, the requirement is that you have to leave it in that bottle for 18 months. We leave ours in bottles for a considerable period of time. So the 2014 Classic Cuvée has been, the ones we're selling now, has been in bottle for, for seven years. The stuff we're going to be selling will have been in bottle for secondary fermentation for eight years. And during that time, what happens is that the yeast breaks down. And as it breaks down, it gives off some toastier flavors. And this is where the croissant flavors oh. come in. And what we're doing constantly is testing each particular bottle or each particular vintage, because we only do single vintage wines at All Angels. And what we do is we taste it and see whether or not we think it's ready. And at that point, what happens is we then have to do what's called riddling disgorging, which is a process for taking out the yeast. Because if you if you ever come to an All Angels tour and tasting, for example, I would show you a bottle where the secondary fermentation is still going on, but it's very cloudy. Nobody's going to buy it like that. So you then have to process to, to take that, that yeast out. But it's that combination of picking the grapes at the right time, having the right ground conditions, the climatic conditions to produce grapes with the right sugars and acidity, coupled with the blending exercise, coupled with then leaving it in secondary fermentation in bottle, gives you the distinct flavour. And at All Angels, what we try and do is we try and produce something which is a little bit different. So our sparkling rosé is going to be, I can pretty much say guarantee, it's going to be completely different to any other sparkling rosé for the simple reason that we have a, a particular grape variety in there of which there is very little in this country. Mark, that's fascinating. And does the ultimate uh, taste choice rest with you? Yes, it does. <laughs> so if it's all wrong, it's my fault. That's uh, okay. Which is, 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 uh, is fair enough. You know, it's one of those things, when we first we first did it, we were, you know, frankly, we had a good idea, but we weren't experts. Nowadays, it really is a case of the bus stops with me. What do you consider as your greatest achievement, Mark? Well, I think it's, I, I wouldn't like to say as regards to being at this stage because uh, there's still a way to go. I mean, I'm obviously very proud of the wines we produced, particularly in 2014. Other than from a personal uh, perspective, I, within my personal life, one of my greatest achievements, I think, has been in the city, to be honest. I'm very proud of what we've achieved, what I achieved there. So I was responsible for things such as in, including saving Bearings Bank, including um, working all over one Christmas, in, in, including the entirety of Christmas Day to save about 10,000 jobs for a, uh, a company in Scandinavia. So I think they're the ones that I'm probably considered to be my great achievements because they've been, they've been highly successful. Oh, that, that's tremendous, Mark. Let's go on now, a few more questions. I visited a few supermarkets the other day in search of some English wines, but failed miserably. Why don't we see more English wines in the mainstream supermarkets? 
I think the answer to that, Deb, is you went to the wrong supermarkets. Um, <laughs> uh, genuinely, I mean, we we uh, we at All Angels, we are literally five minutes away from the centre of Newbury, and uh, if you go around anything, the supermarkets in Newbury, you'll see uh, a lot of English wine. Waitrose is a particularly good supporter of uh, of English wines, and they also uh, support local English wines. So, for example, you went to uh, Waitrose in Newbury. You might see, you won't see, uh, but you might see all angels because we're local to Newbury. Okay. So I think it's a case of look harder. Okay. Stop looking at, stop looking at the gin and look at the wine. <laughs> Finally, a very important topic for everyone is sustainability. You are a member of the Sustainable Wine of Great Britain group and started several projects at Church Farm in 2021. Could you tell us a little about these and your plans for the future? Yeah, I mean, I've always been massively keen on nature. Uh, where I was brought up in Yorkshire, I was never allowed to watch television. I was sent out on the moors with the dogs. Um, and I've just formed this massive love of nature. So we have, um, in addition to vineyards, uh, we have a, a large area of land. And, and one of the things that I discovered when I was taking the, the, the dogs around there one winter was we kept flushing snipe, which is a little small wetland bird. And uh, so we decided we were going to try and encourage it. So we put in uh, a series of fall of three ponds to encourage more wetland wildlife. And we've uh, put in a wildflower meadow uh, on what was previously just scrubland. And we've just planted uh, 240 apple trees and are about to plant some more oaks. I mean, we reckon that we capture, when the apple trees are, are up and running, we'll be capturing about 25 tonnes of carbon a year. Um, with our, our various things and it, to me that is very important that's a wonderful achievement are, are you going into cider making we are oh my goodness oh another another new venture we're um, going to finish up the interview now but we can't leave without discussing your other passion fishing uh, when did you first become hooked to coin a phrase um when i when i was 11 um my uncle who lived in norfolk and i was uh, living in yorkshire with my parents got me into fishing uh, my father didn't fish and thought I was crazy. I used to spend hours and hours sitting on the banks of the Leeds and Liverpool Canal with a maggot <laughs> on a hook, hoping that I might catch the odd gudgeon. So it, it's been with me ever since. Um, I love it. But now I'm I'm a bit, you know, I'm sort of more into fly fishing for trout, although I'd love to go back to course fishing at some stage. Okay. And the last key question has to be, what is the best fish that goes with the All Angels Classic Cuvée? <laughs> if you can get it, come as in, uh, conk. So uh, basically, I occasionally go to the Bahamas uh, and a fishing guide there who always goes, dives down and gets some conk, and we have it with the All Angels, and it goes beautifully. I don't even get it in this country, so I'd probably go for something like uh, smoked salmon. That sounds delicious, Mark. On that note, if you would like to buy this delicious English sparkling wine, please go to their website, allangels.com where you will also find further information and news. I would like to thank Mark for his time, insight and advice to others embarking on similar ventures, but also showing what can be achieved through personal dedication and hard work for the benefit of others. There will be more inspiring stories to follow in my next podcast. Deborah signing off.